0: a a blessing to come with you to God's Word this morning. As we come to God's Word, we're beginning a a new series this morning in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Maybe some of you would would wonder or would ask, well, why would you choose 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as your first series as senior pastor? 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which are, are two of Paul's very earliest letters, probably just Galatians, was written prior to Thessalonians. And Paul's life. There, these are letters that are addressed to a, a young church that Paul has just planted, and they, they describe what a healthy church should look like. One uh, commentator puts it this way, he said, Paul's letters to the Thessalonian churches, a church throw valuable light on the church's evangelism, pastoral care, ethical standards, fellowship, public worship, obedience to the apostolic teaching, and future hope. While well, another PCA pastor summarized these two books by saying that they provide an excellent primer on what constitutes a healthy and thriving church, even amidst diversity and with a need for continued spiritual growth. Now, in so many ways, Westminster is and, and has been a, a healthy church, and my wife and I have been so blessed by its ministry over the past 10 years, and, and yet our good theology, as well as our own hearts, remind us that no individual Christian and in no church has arrived. We all have ways that we need to grow, individually and as a church, and so using these letters and, and looking together at these letters will continue to hold up for us uh, a standard, a picture of what it looks like to live faithfully faithfully even amidst adversity until christ returns so if you would turn with me to first thessalonians look at chapter one and follow with me as i read through the middle of verse five this morning here is god's word paul sylvanus and timothy to the church of the thessalonians in god the father and the lord jesus christ grace to you and peace we give thanks to god always for all of you Father, this is your word that you've given us, your word that you inspired by the Holy Spirit and continue to apply in our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would encourage us and challenge us with your word this morning, as you know each one of us needs. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, if we begin First Thessalonians, begin this, this new book, we could start with Probably the most obvious statement that First Thessalonians is a letter. And if you still write letters, and no, I don't think letter length texts count, uh, but if you still write letters, you know that letters have a certain form to them, and Paul's letters all follow a, a typical format as well. And if you look in verse 1, we'll see Paul's typical letter format. You'll see a statement of who the letter's from, who the letter's written to, and a brief introductory greeting. Let's look at those details just briefly in verse 1. We first learn that this letter is from Paul as well as Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is uh, another form of the word uh, or the name Silas, and most of us will probably remember Paul's companion by the name of Silas from the book of Acts. Paul and Silas, as well as Timothy, were in Philippi together, and you may remember that story where Paul and Silas were put in prison together in Philippi, and they were there at midnight singing hymns together. You can only imagine what the fellow prisoners were thinking at midnight as hymns were being belted out. Uh, But at midnight, while they were singing an earthquake, set them free, and the Philippian jailer and his whole family put their faith in Christ. Well, we learn in Acts that right after going to Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy went on to Thessalonica for the first time and preached the gospel there in Thessalonica. And we read that the new church was founded when some Jews, a great many devout Greeks and not a few leading women of the city were persuaded of the gospel at Paul's preaching and put their faith in Christ beginning this Thessalonian church. But almost immediately, if you uh, read in Acts 17, the Jews in the city stirred up a mob, set the city in an uproar, and uh, attacked the house or ran to the house of Jason where Paul and Silas and Timothy were staying, and they forced them to flee. They didn't find them there, but immediately Paul and Silas and Timothy had to flee the city. And while Paul continued his missionary journey to, to Berea and then Athens and then Corinth, you can imagine what Paul's thinking. I preached the gospel, people responded and put their faith in Christ, and then I had to flee. How are they doing? Is their faith still strong? How have they responded to the trials and persecutions they faced? And I think if my own reaction to the new grass seed that I planted this past week is any indication. I was out every morning this past week looking to see, is my grass seed growing yet? And if I'm responding that way, if I've planted grass seed, imagine how Paul's feeling when he planted a church. How are they doing? And so we read in Acts that he shortly sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to learn how these new believers were doing. And First Thessalonians was written... As Timothy returned and brought Paul this encouraging news that the Thessalonian believers were standing strong for their faith, even in the midst of adversity, and even though there were some questions that needed to be answered. And so Paul writes this letter. It's from Paul, along with Silas and Timothy. Who is the letter to? Well, we find out here that the letter is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to highlight two things about Paul's language here. First, Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians. And the word for church is important because the word that we translate as church, we think that's a very normal word, was was actually the word for assembly, the Greek word for a gathering or or an assembly of people. And I think that's significant because while Christianity, of course, is made up of individuals who put their faith in Christ Jesus— Christianity has always primarily been about a community or an assembly of believers. Our identity as God's people is always together as his body, as brothers and sisters who are united together as God is our Father, in fellowship with one another as the body of Christ. And I think it's so worth remembering as we're now scattered in all of our different homes that this is not normal. This is not the way God's church is intended to be. You, we can't receive our, our feeding or, or fulfill what it means to be the church just by getting a good internet sermon every week. Part of our identity as a Christian is to be part of the gathering of God's people. And so we long to be back together again as soon as we can. On the other hand, I think it's helpful and, and important to note that Paul addresses the Thessalonians as the church In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of an interesting phrase. What exactly does it mean to be in God? Obviously, we're not talking about being in a house or dwelling in Him in the same way. Rather, Paul is making a statement about the source of our life as believers. Maybe you can think about some other passages of Scripture, like John 15, where Jesus says that a branch is alive and bears fruit in the vine when it's connected to the vine. Whereas if a a branch was separate from the vine, it dies. Or maybe you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says that that an arm or or a limb is alive and active when it is in the body, when it's connected to the body. But of course, if our arm or a limb is amputated, it becomes lifeless and useless. And so for us, We are in God, connected to him. The church's life and strength and security is found because we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, connected to him. The community of God's people, the church, is those who are made alive, who are made fruitful because they are united by faith to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is such an encouraging statement. I think it reminds us of our complete dependence upon God, but it also reminds us of our living strength and security that are ours because we are in him. So this letter is written to the church, the gathering of God's people, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul gives this brief greeting that he gives in so many of his letters, grace to you and peace. These uh, words, Paul has taken the familiar Hebrew greeting, shalom, or peace, which was a greeting not just that you would have an absence of conflict, but that, that God would restore all things as they should be. That's biblical peace or shalom, the restoration of everything as God intended it to be. He's taken this typical Hebrew greeting and added his desire for grace, God's rich and undeserved favor to be with his people. And what a great greeting. Since God's rich, undeserved favor, his grace and God's peace, the restoration of all things as they should be, are what we so badly need and are exactly what God offers us in Christ Jesus. It's the perfect greeting for God's people. Grace to you and peace. Well, this is Paul's opening of the letter to the Thessalonian church, but let's turn our attention now to verses two through five. And it's these verses, verses 2 through 5, that John Calvin has described as a brief definition of true Christianity. Because in these verses, Paul rejoices. He gives thanks to God continually because he sees the genuineness of the Thessalonians' faith. And in doing so, Paul sets out for us the essential marks of genuine faith in Christ. Some of you know that the issue of genuine versus fake artifacts has been in the news in recent weeks because after a lengthy scientific examination, a report was just released about three weeks ago confirming a growing uh, suspicion that all 16 fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls on display in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. are in fact fake. Now this is An interesting uh, uh, statement, these uh, fragments have duped experts for 18 years, multiple experts uh, evaluated these, declared them as genuine since they mysteriously appeared on the antiquities market almost 20 years ago, and yet now we have conclusive evidence that they are not genuine. Now, this has no, uh, no impact on the reliability of Scripture at all, because um, the, the reliability of Scripture didn't rest on these fragments in any way. But it highlights the process for identifying something as genuine or fake. The examination used a number of tests, and these tests were looking for certain evidences that would mark these fragments as genuine. And they would also tell us about their source. They looked at things like the material of the parchment, which, as it turns out, was not parchment at all. They looked at the ink. They looked at the style of writing. And all of these marks that would tell whether these fragments were genuine or not. And in a similar way, as we look at verses 2 through 5 here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes how he knows that the Thessalonians' faith is genuine. And he does so both by listing evidences of genuine faith and the source of genuine faith. Let's look at both of those together. First, look at verse 3, where Paul lists the evidences of genuine faith. The Thessalonians' work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. The evidence begins with the Thessalonians' work of faith. And notice that Paul is not referring to a specific list of good works, their works of faith— Rather, he's referring to the body of their work of faith, or perhaps we could say to their lifestyle of faith. As one commentator put it, faith produces a continuous career of activity, of increasing fruitfulness and obedience that is different than the activity of the world. And it gives evidence that genuine faith is there. That work of faith might include trusting God in the face of difficulty. It might include obeying God in the face of temptation. It might include honoring the Lord in the workplace. Or, or maybe honoring the Lord with our time as we, as we put priority on his word and on his truth. Maybe it includes sharing the gospel with those around him. These are the activities, the, the activity and decision of their lives It gave evidence of genuine faith that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior who is coming again. So the work of faith or lifestyle of faith was the first evidence Paul saw. Then there was their labor of love. And the word labor here highlights that the Thessalonians' love was was not about their fond feelings for one another, nor was it about a, a periodic dinner invitation, though certainly dinner invitations could be part of it. The Thessalonians rather evidenced a labor of love. They were willing to serve in costly ways because of the love their commitment to and care for one another that had arisen from their faith in Christ. I've been reading recently a book called The J-Curve by Paul Miller And Paul Miller gently prods 21st century American Christians arguing that often we are quicker to put up boundaries to protect ourselves from sacrificial love than we are to die to ourselves in order to love one another. Now, perhaps we can tremble a little bit uh, when we think of our busy lives, or, well, maybe our normally busy lives, uh, and we hear, uh, maybe we get overwhelmed when we hear Scripture speak of sacrifices and labor of love on, uh, on behalf of others. But if we are overwhelmed by this, I think it misses the point. Because the, that perspective often comes from an attitude that's asking, well, how much must I have to love others, or how much must I have to do to demonstrate genuine love? This verse is not about a certain amount that we have to do. It's not about comparing ourselves to others or a certain, certain, certain level of, or amount of loving sacrifices we have to make. No, the point here in Scripture is that genuine faith is so filled with the love of Christ for Christ's people that we will naturally act, naturally overflow in sacrificial love for one another because we care for each other. One commentator illustrates the point well with an old story of a Bulgarian peasant. The peasant uh, had a guest in his house, and the guest came to the house and stayed for a number of days, and all through his stay there, the daughter of the peasant was hand-stitching a dress. Now, that vision astounds me i have to think that i would be you know retired with arthritis before i can you know finish a dress by hand stitch and yet here's this daughter stitching this dress by hand day after day and after several days the visitor asked her he said don't you ever get tired of those eternal stitches and she said oh no i could never get tired of stitching this dress see this is my wedding dress See, this was not a a costly, burdensome work for the daughter. Yes, it involved lots of work, but it was transformed into a desired and delightful task by her love, by her love for the coming wedding to her, to her groom. And the same would be true for us. A genuine faith leads to a love for one another that's inspired by Christ's love for us, which leads us to delight in serving one another and loving one another. If the greatest, most costly sacrifice was accomplished by Christ for me and for his people, my heart should not be left counting how much I have to sacrifice for one another to meet the godly requirement. No, my heart overflows with the love, with the eager desire to care for my fellow believers for whom Christ died just as he died for me. A mark of genuine faith is our labor of love for one another for whom Christ died. Well, then the final, the third evidence that Paul lists is steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And right off the bat, we have to make sure we remind ourselves of what the Bible means when it talks about hope. Steadfastness of hope was not the characteristic of an eternal optimist who is always confident that everything is going to turn out well. I might fall into that category myself sometimes, but eternal optimism is not the same as hope. Since I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, a number of you have commented or have written to me to tell me that you also have read David McCullough's biography or history of the making of the Panama Canal. And others of you may know something of its history and know that the French made the first attempt at digging the canal, but that attempt failed largely because its leader, Ferdinand de Lesseps, constantly believed the canal would be accomplished, even in the face of engineering obstacles that he had no idea how to overcome, and constantly underestimated the cost, the amount of labor that was necessary, and the time it would take. He was always optimistic, confident it would be completed, even against all the facts of the situation. And so the project failed. That kind of optimism is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is exactly the opposite of that. Biblical hope is the steadfastness that comes when we are 100% sure of the outcome because God has promised it. You know, last week we celebrated Easter, Easter morning, and the resurrection of Christ. But the resurrection is not just something we celebrate on Easter Sunday— Every single Sunday when we worship God on Sunday morning, we are remembering and celebrating the fact that Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week and is coming back again just as he promised. And if his return and his salvation of all those who have put their trust in him is a guarantee, then it produces steadfastness and faithfulness to the Lord in the face of any obstacle because the end result of resurrection hope is a guarantee for all those who trust in Him. That's biblical hope. That's steadfastness that comes from the guarantee of God's promises of salvation. Well, pause for a minute and think over these evidences of genuine faith. If you think about this, passage, I think it should be obvious that Paul is not saying that the believers did these things in order to earn salvation or in order to kind of make the mark of a godly person. That would be as preposterous as making a list of the things that you or I could do to create a genuine Dead Sea scroll. Well, that's impossible by definition, and so it is impossible for us to do enough to earn genuine faith in Christ. Rather, these things are the fruits that will be evident in our lives when God's Spirit dwells in us through faith in Christ. And I think this leads to a couple of wonderful encouragements to us. To begin, this list shows us the characteristics of spiritual growth and spiritual faithfulness that actually matter to each of us, both individually and as a church. And maybe we could put it this way. Let's imagine for a minute, and maybe this isn't hard to imagine at all, that this coronavirus time would lead to many in our congregation who would lose jobs, and that would, allow, that would, that would cause giving and offerings to go down, and it would mean that we, we couldn't hire staff or couldn't expand building or ministry, and we would, we would lose things as a church in, in those categories. But if that same time and that same process of this coronavirus period, we as a church grew in faith that overflowed in prayer and time in God's word and evangelism, if we grew in love and care for one another as a congregation, if we grew in our confident hope in Christ's return, that would be great growth and great gain. Because it's faith, it's hope, It's love for one another that are the characteristics of spiritual growth and faithfulness we long to see. That marks growth in a congregation, not more tangible things maybe like buildings or budgets or number of ministries. And the same is true for us individually. My wife and I were discussing this week how in many ways it's constancy of faith love for one another, and hope in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that sustains us day after day in the midst of quarantine. And what a great gain it would be if God's Spirit uses this time to give us as His people and His church growth in these fruits of genuine faith. Well, this list of evidences of genuine faith should also be such an encouragement to us See, sometimes we read a passage like this and and rather than maybe allowing the spirit to to give genuine conviction of where we need to grow, we instead feel this weighty burden, this burden of, oh man, what if I'm not doing these things well enough? What if I need to do more to have a, a proper labor of love? But this verse doesn't present us with a burden. This verse should thrill our souls because if God's spirit dwells in me, If I'm a child of God, then this verse is telling me that God's Spirit will work in us, works of faith, labors of love, and steadfastness of hope, because the power of the very Spirit of God is living in us. He is the one who's enabling these things. He is the one who's producing in me these things that I so desire and yet could never produce in myself through my own strength. Our theology and our own experience, I think, remind us that we will never be perfect in this life. We will never perfectly overcome sin. But sometimes our focus is so heavily on our fallenness that we forget the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament, that when God's Spirit comes and lives in us, we are new creations, created in Jesus for good works that He has prepared for us beforehand. And we should expect to see God's power at work in us because God's power is living in us by his spirit through faith in Christ. And so when we come to a passage like this, it can thrill our souls that things we would never be capable of on our own, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope can be ours, can be evident in our lives because God's spirit is living in us and at work in us. And that is such a joy. Well, these are the evidences of faith, of genuineness of the Thessalonian faith. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. But now let's look at verses 4 and 5. And if you look at verses 4 and 5 with me, we can see in Paul's words the source of genuine faith. We've seen the evidence of genuine faith. Here we see the source of genuine faith. Paul declares in verse 4 that he knows the Thessalonians' faith is genuine. Because they responded to the preaching of the gospel with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They didn't just hear the gospel. They didn't just respond with interest because, well, God seems like a good idea to think about right now. They didn't just express agreement until persecution hit. No, their lives were changed in a way that humans cannot change another human being who is dead in their sins. The Thessalonians heard this good news, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man and demonstrated his divine power by signs and wonders. He lived a life of perfect obedience to fulfill the law, but then he was crucified for our sake, taking our sins upon himself and bearing the wrath of God in our place. And yet God raised this Jesus up from the dead and set him at the right hand of the throne of heaven where he now pours out his Holy Spirit to bring sinners to life. The Thessalonians heard that good news and the Holy Spirit brought conviction to their hearts and they put their faith in Christ as their savior and their lives were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes it clear that that is the source of, Of genuine faith. But he makes it clear that if we see that source, if we see that conviction of the Holy Spirit in each other's lives, this shows that their faith is genuine because we could only respond that way if we were loved and chosen by God. Look at the way he says it there in verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and conviction. See, every person who responds to the gospel in faith does so because God has chosen them. And God has chosen them for one reason only, not for anything good in us, but only because God has loved us. What a surprising truth that the God of the universe might love sinners like us. And yet that is the root of all our hope of salvation. It's hard to imagine when Paul said this that he wasn't thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 7 where God says to Israel, for the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you are a greater number, more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This is the principle that's been true since the beginning of Scripture. Ever since mankind first rebelled against God, it's become apparent that in sinfulness, unrighteousness, and unholiness are the state of every person born. But God comes and chooses his people and saves them, not because of anything good in them, but because of his great love. This is such a humbling truth, such a wonderful truth that gives us both joy, but also confidence and security. For if God did not love us, he would not have chosen us. And if God would not choose us, then his spirit would not have come to us with power. And if his spirit had not come to us with power, we never would have responded to the gospel in faith so that our faith is only praise and glory to God. But on the flip side, if we have responded in faith and the power of the Spirit is evident in our lives, then Paul can write in confidence of salvation, for faith comes from a genuine source, the power of the Holy Spirit based on the loving action of God. That is true for all who have put their faith in Christ and received the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, when it comes to ancient manuscripts, it takes experts months to verify whether they are genuine or not based on scientific analysis. But in this passage, Paul is rejoicing And giving thanks to God for the clear marks of genuine faith on display in the Thessalonian church. A faith that's rooted in God's sovereign love for them. Brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And clearly seen to be genuine by their work of faith. Their labor of love. And their steadfastness of hope. But in this process of his thanksgiving, Paul gives us these clear markers to use as we examine our own lives. To see whether we see the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our own hearts and in the life of our congregation. If not, the response is not to to do our best to work as hard as we possibly can to, to produce these genuine artifacts. The response is to turn to our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, to turn to him in faith and in prayer, and to trust the Holy Spirit as we seek to love one another as Christ has loved us, as we seek to live by faith in the hope of the returning Jesus Christ. See, if our faith is in Christ, we have the same hope as the Thessalonians that the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us will energize us to live in faith and love and hope as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Father, I thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for this letter that you inspired Paul to write. We thank you and we rejoice over the faithfulness of these Thessalonian believers. And we pray that just as Paul saw in their lives the fruit of a work of faith and a labor of love for one another, and a steadfastness of hope in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that these things would be evident in our lives as well. We ask that the power of your Spirit would bring them about and make them evident as we care for one another, as we persevere in faith, and as we look with steadfast hope to your return. We pray this for your sake and your glory. Amen.